0: Weddings are a big deal. I am always amazed at the many details that go into such events. It usually takes months to properly plan and execute a modern wedding ceremony, but one doesn't actually need to have that much time. There's really only a few things needed for two people to get married. What are those things? Well, there's the couple, a marriage license, You got to have somebody to perform the ceremony and maybe some rings to memorialize the event. In the state of Oregon, where I live, you also need a witness. And in times past, if for whatever reason, the wedding needed to happen quickly, sometimes that witness would be holding a shotgun. Interestingly, the New Testament presents the relationship between the church and Jesus as a marriage, and that's where Jesus is the groom, and those who believe in him are the collective bride. And theologians throughout time have been asking that very important question, what are the necessary elements and maybe the timing for that wedding? Well, in today's episode, we'll take a closer look at the biblical wedding metaphor, and we'll ask if, in our modern-day rendition, we're maybe unintentionally creating shotgun wedding scenarios with Jesus, where we even forget to bring the engagement ring. Well, welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and today we are going to be talking about weddings. Summers are when all the weddings happen. And today we're going to talk about what weddings have become, what elements are essential to a wedding, and how all of this might relate to the relationship between Christ and his church. But first, a little setup. I usually say I pastored for 10 years, and if my wife is around, she'll say, it was almost 11 years. (laughs) But who's counting, right? But having pastored for almost 11 years, one of the things I get asked to do is perform wedding ceremonies. I've been the officiant for about 20 couples going all the way back to 2009. And not that there's a typical wedding, but for the typical wedding, (laughs) there's usually a rehearsal ceremony, includes like the wedding party, all in matching outfits, of course. The parents, the grandparents, the photographer, the ring bearer, the flower girl, maybe I should just say flower person, maybe that's more appropriate. And then (laughs) there's the reception. So many things go into the process for two people to be able to say, we're married. Most of the weddings I officiate involve all of those details I just listed. But my first wedding that I performed back in 2009, it had absolutely no fluff. (laughs) It was as close to a shotgun wedding as I think I'll ever get. And some of you are not on the same page as me already. What's a shotgun wedding? It's given such a name based on the stereotypical scenario in which the father of his daughter, uh, the bride-to-be, that father threatens the reluctant groom with a shotgun in order to ensure that he follows through with the wedding. That's a shotgun wedding. And where that may actually have happened at some point in the past, I really doubt that that's happening much anymore. But that saying has come to kind of just fulfill people that get married quickly for whatever reason. And like I said, the first wedding I ever performed was as close to a shotgun wedding as I hope I will ever get. Let me just tell you the story briefly. I'm going to have to be fairly vague with this story, and I think you'll get uh, the gist of it in just a minute here. So a friend of mine, uh, he worked for a certain government agency that I will not be disclosing today. He called and he asked if I was available to perform a ceremony. The only caveat, he couldn't tell me anything about the couple. (laughs) My instructions were I was to show up, I was to perform the wedding ceremony, sign the marriage license and not ask any questions. And if I hadn't known the person that was asking me, I would have definitely said, absolutely not. That's not the way these things happen. But I trusted him and he said it was legit. So I'm hanging my hat on that. The whole ceremony involved four people. It lasted about seven minutes. I probably could have done it faster, but I was a little nervous. It was my first wedding And uh, I wanted to make sure I didn't forget any important details (laughs) along the way. And I think that's the closest I'll ever get, please, please, (laughs) to officiating a shotgun wedding. And like I said, all the other weddings I've performed, have had a lot more to them than that. I was the officiant at a ceremony just a couple weeks ago. And someone in the wedding party asked me, why do we have to have such a big ceremony and spend all the money for weddings? And I said, well, we don't. (laughs) Let me tell you a story. (laughs) But people want to make a big deal out of it because marriage is an important commitment. They want to make sure that this commitment sticks. And kind of just taking a step back from the stories, weddings, they create a covenant relationship and That relationship includes promises being made between people with responsibilities and obligations on both sides. There are vows that are taken, and people promise things that will alter their lives forever. Weddings are a big deal. And interestingly, the Bible suggests that entering into a faith relationship with Jesus is this same type of commitment— Jesus, oftentimes in the scriptures, is portrayed as the groom, and those who believe in him enter into a covenant relationship, and it's all described in terms of a wedding. Those of you who have listened to the previous episodes, uh, the ones in the book of John, specifically episode number four, you know that the whole ministry of Jesus is presented within a wedding metaphor. Jesus as a groom searching for his bride, and how examples of his bride are unexpected people found in side streets and out of the way places. Well, having grown up in the church and having pastored for over a decade, let me just say that sometimes the faith relationships we encourage people to enter into look a lot more like shotgun weddings than a well-planned and thoughtful wedding ceremony. And it's because our focus is often more about solving the problem of sin than entering into a covenant relationship with Jesus. We just want to get rid of the problem. (laughs) We expect Jesus to make it right. And sometimes that process, it feels like we're encouraging people more to By an insurance policy, then encouraging them to enter into a covenantal marriage relationship. Well, we do this all the time, and more often than not, we don't even bring a ring to the engagement. What do I mean? Well, in the Bible, water baptism is presented as the visible sign for those who enter into a covenantal relationship with Jesus through faith. So in that sense, water baptism, there's nothing magical about it, but it's like an engagement ring. It's an outward sign that a commitment has been made and a wedding is underway. And just like there's nothing magical about water baptism, there's also nothing magical about a wedding ring. It's just a visible sign that you've entered into a sacred covenant. But water baptism is the sign that the Bible gives to show that one is in covenant relationship with Christ. And our modern practice of saying a sinner's prayer at an altar is maybe the equivalent of a really quick engagement without any rings. I mean, it might get the job done, but it might also be at the expense of understanding all the stipulations of the covenantal relationship that we've agreed to. So there was that wedding a couple weeks ago that I performed and it got me thinking about all of this. And then this past week, I also listened to episode 21 of the Slow Theology podcast. The hosts of the podcast, AJ Swoboda and Nijay Gupta, did a great job talking about why baptism matters. And I'll put a link in the show notes in case you want to give it a listen. They had a really good discussion that covered some of the historical practices within the Christian faith regarding baptism. Then about halfway through the episode, Swoboda said that he thinks there can be some problems with people getting baptized immediately upon coming to faith. He said, we've created a situation where people often come to really quick decisions without taking seriously the true call to follow Jesus. He brought up the point that sometimes in like a knee-jerk decision situation, people aren't really considering the true commitment it is to become a covenant partner as the bride of Christ. And then he asked the question, should people get baptized immediately after coming to faith? Is it a bigger commitment than we've made it in our modern-day practices? Well, one conclusion that they came to was, was not so much a problem with the timing of when people get baptized, but maybe what we teach baptism actually is. And they asked, what if we treat baptism more like a wedding? And then they said, baptism's a huge deal. And their conversation, it reminded me of a theological debate that was spinning around about 20 years ago, and it pitted those that held to a free grace position of salvation against the idea of those who held what was called a lordship salvation position. And similar to the podcast conversation, that debate 20 years ago, it discussed if entrance into the covenant relationship is as quick and easy as believing. Or is it more of a weighty commitment like marriage. And both sides of that debate used the scriptures to prove their positions. The free grace people often went to the book of John, and they focused on how the word believe is used almost a hundred times in the book of John. It seems to be his focus, and believing seems to be sufficient. But the Lordship Salvation folks used passages that emphasize how a believer must repent and turn from sins and commit one's whole life to Christ to be saved. In other words, one must receive Christ not only as their Savior, but they would say also as their Lord in order to be regenerated. To kind of give you a better feel of how that debate went, and continues in some circles even to today. I'm going to quote from a 1999 article, Why Lordship Faith Misses the Mark for Salvation. It was written by Charlie Bing, who was a big proponent of the free grace position. He writes this, We in the free grace movement are accused of lowering the standards for getting into heaven. We are accused of easy believism. That was a term, the lordship camp came up with. Back to Bing. We are charged with a view that is called no lordship. And let me just break away because John MacArthur kind of led the charge from a lordship salvation camp. So he often gets uh, quoted and and brought out in these uh, articles from back then. Back to Bing. John MacArthur refuses to even acknowledge us as the free grace movement. He calls us the no lordship movement. You can kind of see how friendly people were getting in this. Bing goes on to say this. So what are their standards, the the lordship people, for salvation if we teach easy believism? Charlie Bing asks, are their standards for salvation even attainable by people? And then Charlie Bing quotes a story from another book called Real Christians, and This story has made the circuit in churches and with pastors. I've heard about five different renditions of it, all involving different people. So I'm not really sure how accurate it is historically, but it sets up a very powerful scenario. So let me just read that for you now. He said there's an occasion where a fellow went to an evangelistic meeting and then responded to the message. And afterwards, he spoke to an evangelist who said, in light of all that we've talked about this evening, can you think of any reason why you should not become a Christian tonight? The young man sat for a few moments thinking, and then he said, no, I can't think of any reason. Then the evangelist said, then let me give you some. And for the next few minutes, he began to explain the cost of being a Christian. He talked about the young man's need to surrender his whole life, his future, his ambitions, his relationships, his possessions, and everything that he was to God. And only if he was prepared to do this, the evangelist explained, could Christ begin to work effectively in his life. And then the evangelist leaned even closer toward him and said, Can you still not think of any reason why you should become a Christian tonight? And the man said, I can think of some now. So so the evangelist said, in that case, do not become a Christian until you have dealt with every one of those reasons and are willing to surrender everything to Christ. So Charlie Bing recounts that story in his journal article And then he quotes Kenneth Gentry, a leading proponent of lordship salvation. And Gentry had a classic definition for lordship salvation. He said, The lordship view expressly states the necessity of acknowledging Christ as the Lord and master of one's life in the act of receiving him as Savior. These are not two different sequential acts or successive steps but rather one act of pure, trusting faith. So Bing says, according to this definition, when we come to Christ as Savior, we also come submitting to him as Lord. Lordship salvation disagrees with the free grace understanding of faith as being conceived and persuaded that something is true. So breaking away from Bing's article and just recapping for just a minute, Back again, about 20 years ago, you had this one camp called the Free Grace Camp, and they literally just said, all it takes is to be convinced that the message of the gospel is true. And if you do that, if you're convinced and you believe that you are saved. But then the Lordship Salvation people came to the table and said, wait a minute, what do we do with all these New Testament passages that talk about a deeper commitment that talk about the marriage metaphor of this relationship with Christ. And they were just asking the question, how are we supposed to reconcile coming to faith and being convinced of something being true, and then also cover the verses that talk about a deeper, more committed relationship? And my question today is, and how does all of that discussion factor into this idea of when do we get baptized? What does the Bible say about when we're supposed to get baptized? Because my experience that I shared in my book was that I grew up in the church and I said sinner's prayers multiple times growing up. And my wife did too. And we got saved in at least one sense, if not multiple senses over the years. But we both, after having been married for a few years— realized that neither one of us had ever gotten baptized in water as a sign of our commitment to Jesus. I mean, we had led Bible studies, we were leaders in our church, but we had never been baptized. And if baptism is presented in Scripture as the initial sign of someone entering into a covenantal relationship with Jesus— Why is it that so often in our culture, baptism is pushed way down the road? So let me just ask you the question. Is it as easy as just believing, or is there a deeper commitment that one must make to be in a covenant relationship with Christ? Is it a one-step process, or are there multiple steps one must take to be saved? Martin Luther, one of the great reformers, has a quote that I love because it shows the complexity of the situation. He said, We are justified by faith alone, but not by faith that is alone. And I love the tension held by the position that he took, because he's acknowledging the simplicity of the relationship and the complexity in the same sentence. I'm guessing you might have an opinion about what you believe on this topic. Do you think initial faith in Jesus is the same as entering into a covenant relationship? What does the Bible have to say about all this? Well, in the remainder of the podcast, we'll take a look at some of the New Testament examples of people getting baptized. And we're going to do this in an attempt to see who these people really are and what type of a commitment they were making when they decided to get baptized and put a ring on it. And just a warning, you may need to rethink what you once thought you already knew about believing and getting baptized. So when we look at the New Testament, we often see that people come to faith in Jesus and it seems like immediately they get baptized. And it's not everybody, not everybody that comes to faith uh, is shown as being baptized, but the ones that do seems to be fairly quick. And using the wedding metaphor, they come to faith in him and immediately they put that engagement ring on. They get baptized. and why would I say engagement ring versus a wedding? Well, this may be a little theological nitpicking on my part, but I'm trying to be careful and I've rewritten this script two or three times just trying to make sure I was crossing all my T's and dotting all my I's. The New Testament, specifically uh, the example I gave is the Gospel of John. John frames Jesus's ministry as Jesus, the groom, in search of a bride. And he goes to the temple early on where you expect to find people that will become his bride. And the temple is just being run by a bunch of people that don't believe. And he overturns the tables and he goes on the road in search of a bride. And he has encounters with people. He has a wedding at Cana. He's got Nicodemus that comes to him at night. He's got the woman at the well. In John 4. He's got these unexpected people that you wouldn't think are going to sign up for a covenantal relationship, but there they are. So John's very careful to set up the Jesus in search of his bride metaphor in the gospel, but we get to the end of the gospel and Jesus has not found his bride. I mean, we have small examples of individual people, but his collective bride, the church. He has not found it. And interestingly enough, John's other book, the book of Revelation, includes the answer to where is Jesus' bride? Because at the end of the book of Revelation, in the last few chapters, the collective bride of Christ is brought forth and the wedding takes place. So because of that scenario, because of the wedding happening at the end of Revelation, a time yet future to us, I believe, I'm going to refer to people in the New Testament and people today that come to faith in Jesus as entering into an engagement. Uh, And this also makes sense because Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, and I will come again. And in the Jewish mindset, Jesus was following the Jewish protocol where the couple would get engaged. And by the way, they were considered married at that time, That's why Mary and Joseph, even though they were just engaged, would have had to have gotten a divorce, as the Bible suggests. But after the engagement, the husband-to-be will go away and prepare a house, usually building on to his parents' home structure. And after a period of time where he got that built, he would come back for his bride, having prepared a place for them to live, and take his bride with him. And so Jesus is talking like a man engaged to be married. And biblically speaking, knowing that that wedding is at the end of Revelation, we should probably view baptism, that outward sign of a covenantal commitment, we should probably equate that with an engagement ring. So when you get baptized, It's an outward sign, like when you wear an engagement ring, that you've made a commitment that is a covenantal commitment. It runs deep. So for many people in the New Testament, they come to faith in Jesus and they immediately get baptized. We'll cover some examples here in just a minute. And at least in those settings, it seems as if it's a one-step, very quick situation. But that's partly our problem, because we read the New Testament like everybody is an unbeliever. And if they come to faith in Jesus, that they're coming to an initial faith. And in those stories, the people get baptized immediately after believing. So if that's the case, why is it that in our modern setting, that's not what seems to be happening? Why are people waiting so long to get baptized? Why is it that a prayer at an altar has taken the place in our culture as the sign of the initiation of a relationship? Well, let's just dive into a few of these examples. And first, I feel like I should mention that John the Baptist had a baptism ministry, but that was a kind of an Old Testament baptism. Up at the temple in Jerusalem, people would have gone through what we would say is a baptism in a mikvah. They would undress They would totally immerse themselves in living water, and then they would come up out of that water and put on new garments. Uh, Very symbolic of the process that they're going to as they walk up into the temple courtyard. John's baptism, John the Baptist out in the wilderness in the early parts of the gospel, we need to see that not as a new covenant baptism, like following Jesus, but we should probably see that as an alternative to what was happening up at the temple in Jerusalem. So just like Jesus went to the temple and didn't find anybody there that were true believers, at least the ones in leadership, the true believers were lost. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And they were looking for true faith and examples of following that true faith. And when they heard John the Baptist, they went out to the wilderness just about as far away from the temple as somebody can get. And they went through a baptism of repentance out there. And for many of them, that's where they met Jesus. So John the Baptist had more of an Old Testament, probably more of a counter-temple baptism. But as we get into the New Testament, especially the book of Acts, we start to see some examples of people getting baptized with the baptism of believing in Jesus. And the first one, uh, obviously, Acts chapter 2, Day of Pentecost, and there were about 3,000 souls that were baptized that day. In Acts 2, 41, it says, So then, those who had received his word, that's Peter preaching on the Day of Pentecost, those who received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And again, we like to think, that these 3,000 people that got baptized on the day of Pentecost, we like to think that they were spiritually neutral prior to this event, that they were unbelievers. And that likely is not the case. If you go back through the podcast episodes into the book of Acts, I argue this in multiple places, that the people responding to that initial presentation of Jesus and the ones that accept it immediately— Those are more than likely people who are already saved through their faith in the promise of a Messiah from the Old Testament standpoint, just like Abraham was. They have a faith that reconciles them with God. And so they're accepting Jesus that day, and the message that Peter gave was just an additional add-on to the faith that they already had. It was a refocusing to a specific person, and they quickly believed in him, and there were plenty of people that didn't believe that day. So, at least on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, could be argued that the people hear about Jesus, they don't come to a brand new faith, but they are extending the faith that they already have into a deeper commitment with the specific person of Jesus. Skipping to Acts 8, we have a bunch of unnamed believers in the city of Samaria. Now, if those in Jerusalem were already believers, you might say, there's no way these people in Samaria are believers prior to hearing the message about Jesus. And I'm just going to push back on that a little bit because Jesus not only spent time with the Samaritan woman at the well— but several of the people from that community came out to the well and met Jesus. And then Jesus went into town and spent days with them. There was a community within that Samaritan group that already believed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, they met him before he died and rose again and ascended to heaven. So they needed to be updated on the progress that Jesus had made in. But this wasn't a brand new faith for most of the people in Samaria that got baptized in Acts chapter 8. Further down in the same chapter, you've got the unnamed Ethiopian eunuch. And for those of you that haven't read this recently, let me just recap. An angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, and the angel said, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And so Philip got up, and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the queen, and he was in charge of all of her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, for those of you that are geographically challenged, (laughs) Ethiopia is in Africa. This guy traveled from Africa to Jerusalem to worship, and my question to you is, Why would somebody ever do that? And the only really good explanation that I can find is found later on in the story, because as he's traveling back and Philip meets up with him, he is reading the scriptures. He's reading a passage from Isaiah, and he's asking questions about the Messiah. Who is this person that this Old Testament prophet is talking about? And it says... Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture in Isaiah, he preached Jesus to him. And then the eunuch said, What prevents me from being baptized? Now, this could be a brand new faith. People will say that the eunuch may be traveling because he's on a political trip on behalf of the queen and he's just fulfilling his duty. But I think the story plays out slightly different. I think this guy had at least the beginnings of faith before ever hearing about Jesus. He's wanting to believe in whoever Isaiah is talking about. And when he finds out about Jesus and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that messianic character that's talked about in the Old Testament, his immediate response is, let's put a ring on it. Let's get baptized. In the next chapter, you've got Saul of Tarsus that's traveling to Damascus. Now Saul, it could be easily argued, is not a believer prior to his Damascus Road experience. I think I can get on board with that. But the characteristic of Paul that's different than a lot of modern day people that come to faith through a sinner's prayer, Paul had all the background. He had all the groundwork laid. He wasn't understanding it correctly, But he understood what the scriptures said about a Messiah character. He just didn't believe Jesus was the one. But then something happened, and it thoroughly convinced him that Jesus is this character that the Old Testament prophesied about. And when that happened, it was just a few days after the scales fell from his eyes and he himself got baptized. It was fairly quick. It wasn't a long wait. In the next chapter, you've got the story of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius, unnamed members of his entire household. And not to go through the whole story, but if you look at all the details in the story, Cornelius is likely a believer in God unto salvation prior to receiving Peter and hearing about Jesus. And what happens when Cornelius hears about Jesus? He immediately gets baptized. He believes in Jesus, and he puts a ring on it. In Acts 16, we have Lydia in the city of Tyathira. How is Lydia described? Well, other than selling purple fabrics, she's called a worshiper of God. And she was listening, and the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So, she was a worshiper of God, and the Lord spoke to her and told her the things of Paul were true. That sounds like a pre-existing relationship with God that allowed her to come to faith in Jesus. What happened with Lydia? She and her whole household got baptized right away. Also in Acts 16, we've got kind of a different one, though. Here we go: the Philippian jailer, Acts 16:33. Now, this guy I'm gonna probably say is the best option we have for somebody that has no background and no faith at all. I mean, we don't know this, but I think just the way it's presented, he's in Philippi. He's a jailer. It doesn't say he's Jewish. I think this guy is probably just scared for his life because he didn't do his job well. And he asked this question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. And it wasn't just that, though. The next verse, verse 32 says, And they spoke the word of the Lord together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his whole household. So what we don't know is this truncated description They spoke the word of the Lord to him. I'm guessing that took a little bit of time, and I'm guessing that they gave him the history and the full thing, and he came to faith. Having seen something miraculous happen that he couldn't explain, he probably came to faith rather easily. What is the jailer's immediate response? He put a ring on it. He got baptized immediately. He was willing to to participate in the outward expression of what had been happening in the unseen inward parts of his soul. In Acts 18, you have Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue and some unnamed members of his household that get baptized. And then you've also got in Acts 19, the unnamed disciples of John the Baptist who are in Ephesus 30 years after the fact and they get the word of who Jesus is and what he had done and they immediately get baptized most of these examples and i'm going to say the philippian jailer is the kind of the one that i would go to to say he's different most of everybody else either had an existing established faith in the god of the old testament and his promises or they had the foundation and knew what that old testament said And after a miracle, we're ready to receive Jesus immediately. All that said, the majority of examples that we have in the book of Acts about people believing in Jesus and becoming baptized immediately, this is not an initial faith experience for these people. Largely, this is a step of sanctification. This is a secondary step for them. They had already come to faith in the God of the Old Testament, and it's not a brand new faith that they're experiencing. When they place their messianic expectations on the person of Jesus. That is a step of sanctification. So most of the examples, the way I read the New Testament, would support maybe a two-step process where we come to an initial faith and then later we're willing to get baptized. Then you got the jailer, right? We got the jailer. (laughs) And we've also got the Great Commission, And the Great Commission is to teach them about Jesus and to baptize them. And there's no timeline given on the Great Commission when that baptism has to take place. But I think the expectation is that it's gonna be happening sooner than it's happening in our culture in modern day. So what's happening in our modern day scenario? We often ask for a commitment of faith before people even have a fully developed concept of who God is. They often have no framework. Sometimes the only framework is that they are a sinner and that Jesus can take away their sin. And the transaction is often presented kind of like a get-out-of-jail-free card. But the Bible talks about this relationship really more like an engagement, getting ready to get married. That's the way the Bible presents it. And in turn, baptism is the covenant equivalent of an engagement ring. So let me just ask the question, are we doing harm by presenting the sinner's prayer and not including all the stipulations of the eventual marriage that you're committing to? And not that that was a big enough question in and of itself, but let's also consider the order of the ordinances. So in the New Testament, we have two signs of a covenantal relationship. We have baptism, which is the initial sign, And then we have communion. Communion is an ongoing reminder that you're in a covenant relationship. So it's kind of like a vow renewal. Some people renew their vows. It's a reminder of the commitment that they've made. Communion is kind of like, I promise to stay true to the promise of the marriage that will one day occur and that I'm highly expecting. That's what communion is. But oftentimes what happens is people say a prayer, and they believe that that suffices for an outward sign of a commitment that they've made, and then they begin taking communion. But they haven't been baptized yet. So what we've created in our modern day is kind of a weird scenario where people are coming to faith, I'm pretty sure, they're saying a prayer, they're verbalizing their faith out loud to people, They're not getting baptized, which is the biblical initial sign of that commitment, but then they're skipping that baptism and they're starting to take communion. And they take communion for years. This was my story. I took communion for years as an active member of my church and a leader in such. And then finally, I got baptized. So do we just get rid of the sinner's prayer, and do we just encourage people that come to faith to be baptized? Or do we keep the sinner's prayer and then say, if you say this, the next step that we would expect you to do fairly quickly is to get baptized. Are you ready to do that? Do we even ask that question? Is that a step towards lordship salvation where we might be requiring more than is required just of coming to faith? I just know that as we attempt to answer these tough questions, these are theologically very tough questions. As we attempt to answer them, it is vitally important that we understand what we're reading when we see people come to faith in the New Testament and get baptized immediately. And for those of you that thought that that was a one-step process, that they're coming to an initial faith experience and then getting baptized right away, the text doesn't support that type of reading for the majority of the cases. And should that affect the way we do our evangelism today? Well, yeah, it probably should. Not exactly sure how that should change. But I also know that for somebody to come to faith through a prayer, in whatever scenario, and then to wait as long as I did— It's not correctly reflecting the relationship that has occurred. It's not following the biblical standard for the signs of the covenant that we enter into when we come to faith. So if somebody says a prayer and they're not ready to get baptized immediately that day, we should be setting up programs that encourage them, that teach them what it is that they've said yes to, and that the next step before anything else, is a water baptism. And until you're ready to take that step, there's probably no reason why you should be taking communion if you haven't publicly declared that you've entered into that covenantal relationship. Now, I've just stepped on a lot of toes, (laughs) and I don't have all the answers. And I've rewritten this script three or four times, because I wasn't comfortable with where I was landing every time I wrote it. So if anything, feel the tension, not just with Martin Luther's comment, but with my own grappling, with my own faith and my own experience. All of you have a story as well, and your story might be similar to mine and might be dramatically different than mine. And all of that needs to be brought to the table and discussed, along with the biblical text properly read. So I'm not sure if we really solve much in this little exercise today, <laughs> except to come to the conclusion that maybe we've assumed some things about those people in the New Testament that got baptized. Maybe we've assumed that they quickly came to an initial faith in God when they met Jesus, and then on the spot, they got baptized. But their situation was very different than our modern context. When we introduce people to Jesus, often it is their very first exposure to who God is and what he requires of those who enter into a covenantal relationship with him. Well, that's all I got for today. Thanks again for tuning in to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. If you've got a friend that hasn't been baptized yet, why don't you just share the link of this episode with them right now? They need to hear it. They need to grapple with it. And let's bring them into the conversation. And if I don't say it enough, (laughs) thanks for your support of the Rethinking Scripture podcast.